after tonight, the plan is actually going to be to take a break <clears throat> from our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Samuel. What we're going to see tonight, I hope and pray, is that this is uh, an appropriate juncture, actually, to pause. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pause as a congregation. We're going to go away from First Samuel. We're going to look at different things in Scripture. And perhaps, who knows, we may come back to First Samuel later on in the year. <clears throat> so we're going to break. We're going to pause. But really, what I'm intrigued to know is whether you, friend, Christian friend in here, whether you see the big picture in the book of Samuel uh, at this point. Do you see what God is doing? What has God done in First Samuel? He has chosen his anointed. If you think back to chapter 6, the Lord God of heaven and earth has chosen David, son of Jesse, as his king. And what are we doing? What have we been doing over these recent weeks? We've been watching David's unstoppable rise. That rise from the shepherd boy to the moment where he will ascend the throne and become the very king of Israel. You see the big picture? If you see the big picture, do you see the relevance of that to us in here? Friends, what do we know that God has done in the gospel? He has chosen his anointed. Isn't that right? That we have in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the one who is literally the anointed of God. And where do you sit this evening in the big scan of redemptive history? What are we doing? We are waiting for that moment, aren't we? Isn't that our experience as Christians? We're waiting for that moment where we see God's anointed finally and eventually ascend to the throne for he is seen and recognized by all people everywhere as not just the king of Israel, but the king of kings and lord of lords. You see the parallel, do you not? Well, tonight in this chapter of scripture, we're going to see much about opposition to God's anointed. I think I'm right in saying, am I not? That four times... In that chapter, Saul has desperately tried to kill David four times. So we will learn about opposition to God's anointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, more special than that, we will also learn about God's infinite power to overcome any and all opposition to his great saving plan. This chapter is about the power of Almighty God. And let's keep things simple this evening. Three points, three headings. The first is this. Friends, we see in 1 Samuel 19 God's use of those who love his anointed. We see that. God's use of those who love God's king. It's been a few weeks, isn't it, since we've been in First Samuel. First of all, I was stuck in the snow, and then we had Saul stepping in last week. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this book. Do you remember where we were? Do you remember what happened? We had seen Saul try a number of really kind of secretive and underhand ways 
to kill David. Do you remember this? He sent David out a number of times to the front lines. Remember? To fight the Philistines. It was all secretive. He was trying desperately, underhand ways to, to kill God's anointed. Now, you notice, don't you? Things become much more overt in chapter 19. It's no longer secretive, is it? Right at the beginning, you've got Saul very openly command his servants, command his son, go kill him. Go get him. Kill God's anointed. There's the plan. Overt plan. Wicked plan. Does it work? <laughs> look at verse 1. Doesn't work. Have a look. We're told that Jonathan, remember Saul's son? Jonathan delighted in David. That immediately reminds us of what we've seen. Remember this? That, that Jonathan loved David, didn't he? He looked at David and he saw this is a man who who seeks the glory and honor. He loves David. So is he going to seek David's downfall? Is he? No, not a bit of it. In fact, don't you love what Jonathan does? I think it's kind of sneaky, actually. It's sneaky, but in a really good way. Because what does Jonathan do? Instead of killing David, he takes his dad, Saul, out into a field. And you see how it's sneaky? He speaks to Saul, but it's all within earshot of David, who's hiding in a bush nearby. You're with me? It's a little bit sneaky, isn't it? But it's beautiful. It's great. It's a lovely thing to do. But here's the thing. What does Jonathan say to Saul about David? Well, recently I have had to, um, I've been asked by a lot in the congregation, or quite a few of you, uh, to fill in references. You see what I mean? Like maybe people are looking to, for a new job and they need a referee or a new flat in London and they need a reference and they think, oh, well, good if we've got somebody from the church uh, writing a reference. So I've been writing a few of these references recently. Um, and contrary to my nature, I've, I've tried to be really nice in the references uh, as well. You see, all of these references that I've been writing, none of them even begin to compare with the glowing character reference that Jonathan gives in that field to Saul about David. Now have a look at it in verse 4. You, you see what I mean by being a glowing reference? Like he, Jonathan, first of all, speaks of David's... Can you see them in the field? <laughs> And he speaks of David's integrity. And he speaks of his innocence. And then finally, look at the last, he speaks of his influence. He's saying to his dad, he's saying to Saul, look, David's been good to you and he's been good to, to, to Israel. You see, it's glowing, it's beautiful. But here's the thing. How does Saul respond? Like temporarily it seems wonderful. Initially it seems great because Saul initially relents. And he says to his son, okay, he's brilliant. Is he okay? I'll not kill him. But then what happens? Within the blink of an eye, Saul's up to his old tricks again, isn't he? And he reaches for his spear and he's throwing it and he's trying to kill David. Do you see what it is? It's a temporary victory, friend. Now there's your big picture. What's the question we must ask? What is it that God is saying to us here? And I think there's a couple of things. Friends, please get these. First of all, what we've got here should make you, as a Christian, realistic 
about the opposition that exists today in London to the Lord Jesus Christ and to you, his people. We see this opposition from Saul. It should make you realistic about the battle that you are in, Christian friend. Realistic about the opposition. See, many years ago I stayed with a guy when I was a student in a flat who was the biggest conspiracy theorist <laughs> that I've ever met. I don't know if you have met anybody like this. A conspiracy. Everything was a conspiracy against him and in light. Everything was a conspiracy. 9-11 conspiracy. Uh, the moon landing conspiracy. And I could go on. Is this not the case though? It's no conspiracy theory at all to suggest that lying behind so much of what is happening today in our society in London and the culture today, lying behind it is this undercurrent of opposition against the kingdom of God. That's not a conspiracy theory made up by the church. That is spiritual realism. And many people, and some of your friends and some of the people we know, many of them are being used by Satan to oppose Christ. Many people today, maybe completely unwittingly, being used by Satan in pressure groups today in Britain, and being used in politics to stand against God's anointed, to stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely when we read 1 Samuel 19 and we're reminded about the opposition, we've got to be alert to that. God wants you to be awake to the opposition that exists. But... Do we not also see in Jonathan here the role that you're supposed to play and I'm supposed to play? Let me ask you, how would you describe what Jonathan does? He takes his father out into the field. How would you describe what, what he does there? Would you say to me, well, he's taking a stand for God's king. Is that what you would say? He's taking a stand for God's anointed. Yes, but isn't it more than that? Because wouldn't you agree with me that what Jonathan does is preach the gospel? Look at it again in verse 4. Look what he does. First of all, he speaks of Saul's sin. That he tries to convince Saul of the severity of his sin. Then look how he describes God's king, God's anointed. He is the one who brings salvation to Israel. That sounds familiar, does it not? And then to see how he ends it. He encourages Saul to be reconciled to God by being reconciled to God's king, God's anointed. What does that sound like to you? Sin, salvation, reconciliation with God. What does it sound like? Isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the good news? And isn't that the role that we are to play? You live in a culture of hostility and hatred towards Christianity, what does your God want from you? Does he want us to be silent? Does he want us to clam up? No. Look at Jonathan. God wants us to stand for Christ when our culture stands against Christ. That is the role, like Jonathan, of those who love God's anointed. Okay. Second thing we see here in 1 Samuel 19 is God's use of the most unlikely people. We've seen God's use of those who love 
is anointed God's use of the most unlikely people. So do you follow, do you see where we are as we're moving through this story? Do you see what's what's happening now? Saul has thrown a spear. Sounds familiar to us if you've been here for the sermon series, doesn't it? Saul has thrown a spear at David. And David has fled from Saul's presence. Did you notice where he goes? He flees home. That's where he goes. I think at this stage, there should be a kind of familiarity for you and for me in 1 Samuel 19. Because you and I have all, we've read or watched films uh, where there's a stakeout. Haven't we? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We've, we've either read a book, a detective novel, or seen a film where the police or the government are putting somebody under surveillance. That sort of idea, right? Now, you see that that's what's happening here. Because what does Saul do now? He speaks to his servants and he says to them, Right, stake David out in his home. You do this overnight. You keep an eye on him overnight. And in the morning... We'll all go there and we'll get him and we'll put him to death. Now, again, I say to you, does this pretty wicked plan, the stake out, does it work? No, because who comes to David's rescue this time? Michael or Michael or however we're going to pronounce it, David's wife. And in fact, I say this to you, in 1 Samuel 19, does this woman not come over to you all Rahab. It's kind of going to test our biblical knowledge a little bit. But we should be fine given most of the house groups have looked at Rahab and judges in recent times. You remember the story, don't you? Did you notice the parallels that exist with Rahab here? First of all, do you see? Like Rahab... Michael helps David escape how? From his pursuers through a window. Right? There's your first one. But there's a second parallel here. Like Rahab, Michael lies to help him escape. In fact, she lies a couple of times here. Did you notice it? First of all, what does she do? She puts a kind of dummy. That's <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? She puts a dummy almost in David's bed and then she happens to have a pillow made of goat's hair. And so she uses this as well. So the servants come in and she's, oh, this is David and he's sick in his bed. She lies. Okay? But then she lies again because Saul discovers the dummy and the goat's hair. And what does she say? She says, actually, David made me do this, which is a lie again. Now, isn't that interesting? I think we could spend weeks looking at that. She lies. And we know it's wrong. And we know ours is a God who does not lie. But you ask yourself, well, what else could she have done here in a sense, you know? But actually, I want us to look at the big picture. Because is this not the message with Michal? We look at her. We look at this woman. And what do we see? That our God is willing and able to use the most unlikely people for the furtherance of his kingdom. I'm asking you, if you see why she's unlikely, this woman. Why is she unlikely? First of all, isn't that a little bit amusing? First of all, 
God used Jonathan, Saul's son. Now he uses Saul's daughter. So the very people, the very person you would think would be on Saul's side, God uses to oppose Saul. Unlikely in that way. But there's another better one. Would you look at verse 13, please? Verse 13. I said to you that Michal used a dummy and she did not use a dummy. Look at verse 13. The word that's used is the word image. And it's the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis chapter 31. And it is a word that means an idol. A household God. And that ties in exactly with what we saw last time in the previous chapter. Do you remember? Saul hoped that Michal would snare David because of her idolatry. Isn't it incredible? I mean, think of it. God is using this woman. God is using a woman like her, a woman who is captured in idolatry, a woman who is given over to the worship of household idols, using her not just for the safeguarding, but the promotion of his kingdom. And I think tonight, honestly, that should bolster our confidence in the sovereignty of our God. Because as your minister, I hear this a a lot from people. People worried in the congregation, worried in London about the direction that our country is headed. Worried that we have nowhere to turn to, nowhere to look. Even our council leaders, even our parliamentarians, our government officials... They seem not to support and defend the church, do they? They seem, many of them, just to embrace, eager to embrace any anti-Christian ideology or agenda. And we worry, where's the help going to come from? Who's going to defend our rights as Christians? And then, remember this, that God can use even his enemies. Like God in a flash, in the flick of a finger, can use even those who oppose him vehemently. But as he does with Cyrus in the book of Ezra. Do you remember the story? Uses a pagan to send his people back to the promised land. What about the New Testament with Caiaphas? He uses a man like Caiaphas to preach unwittingly of one man dying for many. As he does here, God can use his enemies for the furtherance of his kingdom. Shouldn't that bolster our confidence? Shouldn't we be brought to a place of great worship? You and I just now are before the Lord God of heaven and earth. And opponents to him are nothing. So we see... God's use of those who love his anointed. We see God's use of the most unlikely of people, like Michal. And then we end with a third point, and that is God's use of the Holy Spirit. You're with me when I say that David is having a pretty 
hard time of things, isn't he, in this chapter? Time and time again, he is going through misery. What does he do now? Michal's helped him escape, hasn't she? She's lied for him. He has escaped through the window and he's on the run. Where does he go? Well, he runs to a place called Ramah where he meets up with Samuel. Remember Samuel from a few chapters ago? And together, David and Samuel go to a place called Naioth eh, to worship the Lord together. That's his escape route and his escape plan. So, I ask you, why does he do that? Like, why does he not, when he flees out of that window, why does he not go and see Jesse? I mean, he's got a lot of brothers. And they're fighting men. He knows a lot of people in the army. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he go to Samuel? You know the answer. Come on, you know the answer. He goes to Samuel because Samuel's a prophet. He goes to Samuel in distress because Samuel is the bringer and the bearer of God's word. And he, in distress, wants to hear from the Lord. And I wonder if that is applicable to you and your situation this evening, is it, friend? Can you, as you see David fleeing time and time again, can you relate to the distress and the anxiety Do you feel set upon? Do you feel opposed? Even like David this evening, do you feel persecuted? Do you see the message? You must go to God with that. Keep going to God with that. And go to God through his word. But then, back in the text, it all gets very amusing. I think surely you're with me when I say that it's quite funny. Do you see what happens? Saul finds out that he's in Nioth with Samuel. Does Saul do? He sends his servants to try and kill him. And what happens? The Holy Spirit overpowers the servants. And the servants, remember they are trying to kill David, suddenly they prophesy. And then another set of servants are sent. And another set of servants. And the same thing. The Holy Spirit overpowers them and they're prophesying. And it's amusing. We're supposed to see. It's funny in a sense. But really the focus is supposed to be on King Saul. So I will end with this. Verse 23, please. Let's end with this. Verse 23. Saul, imagine. He's so exasperated. (laughs) And all these servants are failing him. So what does he do? He goes up himself. Imagine the pomp of that, I think. You know, dressed in his finery. Here's the king of Israel. And after all the shenanigans of the last chapters, you now, do you see it? You now have Saul himself taking matters into his own hands. And he is wanting himself to kill God's anointed. And what happens? The same fate. The Holy Spirit overpowers Saul too. Defeats him and Saul's prophesying. But what you're supposed to get, what we're supposed to marvel at, I think, is the extent of his humiliation. The extent of his defeat. Look at verse 24. There's three elements of it. He's first, think of it, removed of his royal robes. Don't you think that is symbolic? The Holy Spirit removes him of his royal finery and splendor. Then look at it. Look. 
He is, it's emphasized, stripped entirely naked. A fate in the ancient world that brought such shame. We've seen this before, but it all is building up. There's all this massive amount of momentum to the very last phrase. Look at the very last phrase. And it will ring a bell with you, I know. Look, people say of Saul now, is Saul amongst the prophets? Do you recognize it? Come on, from the first reading. The same thing was said at the start of Saul's kingship. He said at the very end of his kingship in the eyes of God. It brackets Saul's kingship, his rule. And yet, you see it at the beginning, it was said in exaltation of Saul. The people looked at him and said, wow, it's Saul amongst the prophets. But now here it's derogatory. It said in ridicule. Everyone is laughing at him. Do you see? This is complete and utter comprehensive humiliation of this man. God is one or God has defeated the opponents of his anointed. And surely you see what's happening tonight. God is pulling back the curtain just a tiny little bit for you. He's showing you just a little glimpse, a little glance of what we are one day going to see and what is ahead of us. And what is that, friends? One day we will witness with our own eyes the certain, complete demise and defeat of all the opponents of the gospel of God. That Satan and all his his armies will be completely annihilated by God. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will ascend the throne. There will be this coronation. And every eye, every eye will see it. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. We will sing, Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It shall happen. And no opponent can do anything to stop it. So tonight I ask you this. Which side are you on in First Samuel 19? Tonight, by your unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you stand with Saul and destined to face defeat and humiliation? Or do you stand like Jonathan? With God's anointed. Do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ out of love for Him, our Christ? Which is it, friends? I think 1 Samuel 19 should fill us with confidence. You know, society can shift and new laws can be made legal and all these politicians can pontificate. What does the church know? We know one day Christ shall be king. He shall be Lord of all and nothing. And no one can stand in the way of the Lord God of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would make us like Jonathan. Lord, how we pray that you would make us bold. We pray that you would make us take people into the fields 
and speak to them of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's anointed, to tell people of the wonder of salvation in Christ. But we thank you for the hope that we have, the eternal hope that is before us, that sure hope that one day everyone shall know of Jesus and your glory. Lord, we pray all of these things in our Savior's name. Amen.